as we turn to Mark chapter 6, I want to kind of catch you back up. If you're a student, you've been gone for a few months. I want to make sure you know where we are perhaps a few months. No, you're like, it hasn't been that long, Eric. Uh, The issue of the past couple of chapters has been this. Jesus is about the business of teaching uh, the principles and the powers of God's kingdom. And he did it He did it first in the form of parables. And then Mark tells us how Jesus displayed the principles and the powers of the kingdom through particular miracles. And in each of those miracles, he's inviting those who see and are a part of them to step in to his offer of faith, to simply learn to trust him. Will you believe Jesus in circumstances which are outside of your control? And then now Mark turns from from this issue of faith and he introduces a tension with unbelief. And in Mark chapter 6, you see that there are people who thought they knew Jesus very well just because they'd been around him for much of their lives, but they actually prove that they do not know him at all. The fact is when when you presume with preconceived notions about who Jesus probably is, you are more liable to move away from faith and towards unbelief, which is why we come to God's word to make sure we really do know who Jesus says he is. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, we'll read those first 13 verses. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. Let's pray for the ministry of his Holy Spirit and help. Oh, Father, we... Thank you for this gift of your word. We pray that through the ministry and the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak through the mouth of an ordinary person like me, a crooked stick, that you would give those who hear ears to hear what you would say through your spirit. And Father, would you again be willing to use a crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus? We ask, oh Father, that you would send forth your word. In Jesus' name, amen. With authority. I'm reminded as I looked at this particular passage of a a sportscaster who used to use that particular phrase whenever he would be calling a professional basketball game. Now, this particular announcer who was not known for a stellar moral life away from the 
microphone had this catchphrase that he would use to accompany a high-flying dunk of the basketball. So he'd say, Jordan with authority, or he'd say, Malone with authority, or Pippen with authority. Uh, You can tell if you know those names the last time I watched the NBA. Whoever the player was, a, a drive to the basket that was finished with a slam dunk was said to be done with authority. And I begin there because that's really the concept that that reverberates through the chapters of Mark 4 and 5 and even as we enter chapter 6. Not slam dunks, but rather that Jesus reigns over everything with authority, with power, with confidence, with with certainty. And you, you clearly see that in things like calming a storm at sea. Jesus rules over creation with authority. You clearly see that when he sends hundreds of demons off a cliff in a herd of pigs. Jesus rules over evil with authority. You see it when he heals a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. He rules over sickness with authority. Or when he reaches down and and touches the hand of a dead girl who's 12 years old and he, he brings her to life simply by touching her and saying, get up. Because, of course, Jesus rules over death with authority. But then the Son of Man, the Son of God himself, goes home. And suddenly the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt, comes to life. When the authority of God's Son is doubted, because those who had grown up with him, presume with arrogant certainty, that they knew Jesus very well. But you can see, clearly, they really don't. Which makes this a a really fair warning to us. And, And what I mean is it's possible to be around Jesus and there not really know Him. It's possible to claim the name of Christ but never spend time studying Him or knowing Him through reading the Bible. It's possible to even say, Jesus and I, we're tight. I never pray, but we're tight. And so you come to a passage like this, and you actually find a tension between faith and unbelief. Mark says, well, that's actually the way it was even when Jesus was walking on the face of the earth. There were people who thought they knew him really well, but they proved to know him not at all. You expect unbelievers to reject Jesus? People of faith sometimes reject Jesus too. They, they, they reject Jesus because they might be offended by things that he really does say or who he really is. And instead of letting that offense be a correction personally to them, they want to turn it and somehow correct Jesus. No, I don't think he's like that. You see, don't you, of course, the importance that when, when the Bible teaches us things about Jesus which land as an offense, they should actually be used, if you really are a person of faith, it should be used to drive you back to the Lord so that you would also move out into the world as his servant. Mark says the rejected Christ sends his people on mission. And you can look, I think, at verses 1 through 6 and go, it's going to be a little hard to connect 1 through 6 with 7 through 13. They're totally connected. 
So two points this morning, the reason for resentment and a pattern to embrace. Let me start with the reason for resentment. If you uh, came from a small town, I doubt you came from a town smaller than Jesus comes from. Uh, Scholars tell us that Nazareth at the time is between 150 and maybe 300 people. Uh, Many of you graduated high school with more people than that. But it does help to to make the point. Everyone knows everyone or everyone thinks they know everyone. Verse 1 says Jesus came to his hometown and he brought his disciples with him. That's actually a crucial part of the information. Because Jesus continues to train his disciples in ministry. And part of their preparation is going to be able to come and see the rejection that Jesus faces. They are going to learn rejection themselves. So Jesus tells his disciples, remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they reject me, they're certainly going to reject you. In fact, you see as the New Testament unfolds that that the apostles really do learn this lesson. Peter's writing as an old man in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. He says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Paul's writing to the church at at Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, and he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I want to know the power of the resurrection, and I want to share in his sufferings. Share in his sufferings. I wonder if some of you have experienced in, in some small ways, what it means to to share in the rejection of Christ. And what I don't mean is that you are rude to other people and then you get rudeness back and you get, well, I'm just suffering for Christ here. That's probably just the consequence of being rude to other people. But if you belong to Jesus Christ and you identify with him and with his salvation, there will be times, maybe many times, where you stand alone. And when you stand alone, you feel a measure of the sting that Jesus faces among people who should know him well. Maybe you're a a student. You've come to faith while you're here in college. But back home, your parents think, he's he's gone a little bit off the deep end. He's just a little too religious. Jesus would say, well, welcome to feeling what it's like for your family to go He's crazy. It's a part of the sting that Jesus felt. Or maybe you are in a class and the teacher asks for your opinion on a certain issue and you you try to carve away your opinions and you try to say, well, actually, this is what the Bible states and you state it in such a way that you're, you're declaring that there really is an absolute truth. And then like missiles from 1,000 other man-made opinions, they start dropping in on your head. How could you be so arrogant to claim that there is one truth? In those moments, you share in the rejection of Christ. I think you can look at a passage like Mark 6 and go, there's actually some, some comfort here. Not just because Jesus himself faces rejection, but also because he invites his disciples to come in and and, and feel and face it themselves firsthand. So that when it happens to you, and it really will, you don't need to to be shocked, but rather take a moment to even rejoice. 
to share in those sufferings. The synagogue ruler would have heard what Jesus did in other towns, what he did elsewhere. So he invited Jesus on that day to come and open the Old Testament scrolls and preach. And the initial response of the people who heard him preach is not surprising. Verse 2, they were astonished. If you've ever heard a sermon that unfolded a passage of Scripture to you that, that you had never understood before and you had light bulbs go off in your head, oh, that's what it's about. It makes so much more sense now. Well, that's actually the response that Jesus gets everywhere he goes. Because he really did have the authority to say what's true. And he also had the authenticity to to express it as one who knew with absolute certainty that it was true. But then the astonishment doesn't last at all. It turns quickly to resentment. But why? Why do they suddenly resent him? Well, I think the questions that they ask in verses 2 through 3 are actually the reasons for the resentment. Look at them. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? Sinclair Ferguson points out that so much of what they ask just smacks of, of pride. I mean, other people might be fooled by who Jesus is, but we know better. Why is it that they think they know better? Well, because they've been around him. And it's not that he had sin. It's that they are so familiar with him that they're dying to say, no, he's just like us. He didn't have a seminary training. He never studied under one of the scholars of the day. William Lane says it this way. Because they don't know the source of the wisdom, they find his position as a teacher offensive. You're going to instruct us, but you're from us. They're basically prideful and unwilling to receive his word. But it's more than just who does he think he is. In Jesus' day, a man would always be referred to as the son of his father, even when that father is dead. Look at verse 3. Is not this the son of Mary? They're whispering behind their hands. They're casting dispersions on Jesus' legitimacy. Who was his dad anyway? I don't know. You can tell, can't you, that, that in Nazareth, population 150... People never quite believed that story about the seed of the Holy Spirit implanted in a womb of a virgin. And then they start naming his brothers and his sisters as if to say, he can't be anything special because we know him so well. But do you see, friends, that it's actually pride to say, we know him so well. And from that position of pride, they, are, they think themselves privileged to push him away. I've witnessed this so many times in pastoral ministry. I am embarrassed to say I've witnessed it in myself, but I have. I've witnessed it in other people too. And that is that when your heart begins to grow hardened by sin, you begin to make assumptions or presumptions about what Jesus would be like or what he'd want in a certain instance. And and what often happens is it moves in two different directions, meaning you can either be more rigid than Jesus actually is, or you can become 
more loose than Jesus ever was, more permissive, you might say. I knew a man who felt so deeply offended by another person within the church that he never stopped gritting his teeth talking about justice, God's justice. And from God's justice, this offended man was willing to do anything necessary, even violate the Scripture itself, to see justice brought. He was dying to see this person suffer. I wonder if you ever do that in the name of justice. On the other hand, I recall an adulteress who said something like this to me today. I mean, said something like this. Wasn't today, I can promise you that. (laughs) Well, you know, Jesus really is all about grace. He wants me to be happy. In fact, I think he's the one who provided this other relationship, kind of a way to get out of the, the difficult marriage that I'm in. In both cases, I wonder if you can see that Jesus, the true Jesus, is actually rejected by both parties because they think they know him so well. What's the lesson for us? Your heart and my heart is so easily blinded that we will make snap judgments. We'll make presumptions upon what Jesus would do in a particular situation. And what we're doing is we're licensing ourselves to act in certain ways, all while carrying him along, toting a Jesus who never really existed and who does not affirm your sin. The truth is, the real Jesus will always offend you. At some level, who he is will offend you, but it's actually a blessing to embrace that offense because the Jesus who offends you is probably the Jesus who can save you. The Jesus who never offends you has no need to save you because you think he's come along with all your wishes anyway. So before I presume to know him so well, I might better double-check my presumptions against the Jesus of the Bible. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. You need to ask the question when you look at this passage, somehow is Jesus weakened by their unbelief? Is that the reason that Mark says he could do no mighty work there? Not at all. In fact, everywhere Jesus goes throughout his ministry, he encounters unbelief. But why does he marvel at their unbelief? It's the only time Mark uses this word to explain Jesus. Have you ever wondered what Jesus was like as a child? How the almighty king of creation navigated life having brothers and sisters, having imperfect parents, having bullies in the neighborhood, and he navigated that somehow without sin. Well, these are the actual people who witnessed all of that. And Jesus marveled because they had witnessed so much that really should have been an opportunity for them to believe. And because they had so much given to them, so much was to be demanded of belief. But it is because of their prideful unbelief that 
even what they have will be taken away from them. And all of this speaks just to the ordinary hardness of the human heart. As best we can tell from the scriptures, this is going to be Jesus' last trip to Nazareth. He's been there once before, according to Luke, and here's his second trip, and he's actually not going back. And so was Jesus incapable of doing miracles in their midst? Clearly not. Look at verse 5. It says he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And Mark says it like it's a throwaway comment, but to those who were actually healed, it was no throwaway comment at all. They believed upon Jesus. They really did think he could do something for them, and he did. But the fact is, he could do no mighty works there because he's not going to share the joy of his kingdom. He's not going to share the power of what it is to be made new to those who will not celebrate with him. One pastor said it would be morally and spiritually inconsistent for him to do so. Like taking your wedding reception over to the funeral home as if that's a good place for the party. Or taking your birthday party to that person that you know who utterly hates you. They're not going to enjoy the celebration. Another commentator said the performance of miracles in the absence of faith would actually aggravate their guilt. It would harden their hearts against God. So this unbelief excludes the people of Nazareth from what would have been a dynamic disclosure of God's grace that other people had experienced in other places. Even the rejection of Jesus displays his authority though, doesn't it? Because for Jesus and for you, here's a a profound sign of the providence of God. In a world among unbelievers, Jesus expected to be rejected. And as far as you unite yourself to Jesus, you can expect the same thing. Isaiah said, the one whom we read earlier in our Old Testament lesson, he would be despised and rejected by men. He'd be without honor. And in some places he really was. But it doesn't weaken him. All it does is assure Jesus of God's providence. I saw that coming. So let's turn and take the ministry somewhere else. And he pushes ahead. Verse 6, he went out among the villages teaching. So the rejection of Christ doesn't cause him to say, "Eh, I'm done. Instead, it causes him to turn and say, let's take the kingdom where hearts are tender. The rejected Christ sends his people on mission. So we've seen first the reasons for rejection. Now let's look at a pattern to embrace. I want to use three words to simply explain what's happening in verses 7 through 13. The words are authority, dependence, and then juxtaposition. That's a big word. I'll explain it in just a second. Let's start with the issue of authority. You'll remember back in uh, when Jesus calls Simon and um, Andrew from their boats in Mark chapter 1 he says follow me and I will make you become fishers of men you might remember when Jesus calls his first disciples in Mark 3 and he he takes the 12 he says to them that they were appointed by Jesus so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons well here it happens for the first time in the gospel of Mark verse 7 Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits 
You should know this very clearly. In a world with no cell phones, no email, no registered mail, in the ancient world, under Jewish law, if a person came bearing the message of a sender, then that person was to be received as if he was the sender himself. Later, Jesus is going to call his disciples apostles, which means sent ones, because they are representing Jesus and his message to the fullest measure. But you notice also that Jesus sends them out in pairs. They go in pairs like a double testimony according to Jewish law, particularly in court trials. The the truth of an issue is established by the testimony of, of two witnesses. And so even if you and I read this and go, oh, that's probably kind of a neat missionary plan, it's in fact so much more than that. Everywhere the disciples went, the people who heard them understood the message clearly. How you respond to us and the message we bring is how you respond to Jesus, the one who sent it. Do you believe Jesus or do you reject Jesus? So the disciples are sent bearing this authority of the Son of God. Look at verse 12. They went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons. They anointed many with oil who were sick and they were healed. And it's so much like at this moment the very message that John the Baptist was teaching. Repent of your sins. Turn to the Lord. And so as those who are acting on behalf of the authority of Jesus, the message of repentance gets coupled with this, these actions of, of power signs that are meant to confirm the authenticity of the message. And in fact, what's going to happen is later when Jesus is crucified, that same message of repentance doesn't leave people going, well, I guess I should just feel sorry for my sins. No, they're going to say, that Jesus who was rejected rose from the dead. You should put your faith in that one. So it's not just repentance, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Now to be sure, The authority of these apostles and the way that they are sent is absolutely unique in this moment, which is why their writings were received as the same authority as Old Testament scriptures. They preached and they taught from Jesus, so they also wrote under the same authority as Jesus. None of you in this room are apostles. I am not an apostle. We have no new teachings from God And yet, you should be sure that this is still a pattern to embrace. Here's what I mean. By grace, you really have been sent out as an emissary of King Jesus. And I don't just mean that you are sent out as an evangelist. Go tell people about Christ, though you should. But there's more than that. Really, if Christ is your Savior then you walk out into this world under his legitimate authority. You can take that, I think, as comfort or as conviction. It is King Jesus that you represent wherever you go, to your work, to the classroom, to the library, even on the road between this place and that place. I can't take that in any other way than conviction myself. I'm under his authority, and you are too. It's actually a pattern to embrace. The second word I want to show you is dependence. 
Verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Then he instructs them in verse 10 about where they should stay and what that should look like. Uh, I want you to imagine uh, trying to plan a major journey over several days with nothing at all. Most of you would say that's unthinkable. But these men are about to undertake the first mission trip with very minimal supplies. And Jesus says, that's actually my point. If you want to prepare for this mission trip, you will prepare to be dependent upon me. You must prepare simply to trust me to to supply all your needs along the way. The message that they preach is going to be an urgent one. The kingdom of God has come in the presence of Jesus. Everything about what they take and about what they speak speaks to this sense of urgency. Even kicking off the dust from the sandals, it's, it's, it's saying this is actually a mark of judgment. You've rejected Jesus. I want to be clear. This was never a social visit in the first place. Our visit is brief. Our message is clear. Now is the moment to repent and trust Jesus as your Savior. To be sure, that first mission trip is unique to them. But the summons of a life of dependence is actually the same. King Jesus wants all of his disciples to to learn to walk dependently upon him. That's part of the pattern that you and I must embrace as his disciples. And you will notice this in your own life. And what I mean is that God does quite often remove those things which you have counted for your certainty, for your security. And he does that so that you will learn to trust him. He often takes away the very things that you would lean upon, the very things that you hold so dear, so that you would not think him cruel, but you would learn to believe that he really is enough. And he does that in such a diversity of ways Sometimes by removing the people that you love from your life, either to death or something else. Other times he does it by weakening your financial position or causing you to become desperate in your circumstances. And you might do what I often do and go, Lord, where are you? And in that moment you can grow bitter or you can recognize that Jesus is inviting you to live as these disciples were called to live dependently upon him in what ways do you need to learn to live more dependently upon him and in what places do you see yourself kicking against his authority and even his summons to be dependent and where you see yourself kicking against that I wonder if you might recognize that Jesus says I really do love you and I want you to know I really can be trusted one final word will explain this pattern to embrace and it's this word juxtaposition I know that's a weird word I'm not totally sure I can spell it to juxtapose something is to place two ideas up next to each other and to compare their similarities and their differences. And so what I mean is that at first glance, you look at verses 1 through 6, and you see this rejection of Jesus. And then you look at verse 7 through 13, and it seems that it's about the mission of Jesus. And those two sitting next to each other seem absolutely opposed to each other. And Mark is actually laying them side by side so that you and I would notice they're not opposed 
at all. In fact, they fit together beautifully for the purposes of encouragement, but more importantly, they fit together beautifully for the sake of salvation. Because Mark says the mission of Christ wasn't hindered by rejection. One commentator says by situating these two stories at this point in the gospel, Mark shows that unbelief is the context in which the Christian mission advances. And that rejection is the experience that is common not only to the Lord but also to the church. Do you know how many times in church history God's people have been rejected by the world? All the time. And has the church suffered? You are sitting here 2,000 years from the time that this began. The church seems to still drive forward. When Jesus is rejected, he simply turns and sends the kingdom forward in another direction. But I also want you to notice that this pattern to embrace pertains very specifically to the issue of salvation. Rejection and mission. The Son of God came to earth in order to be rejected. And if he were not rejected, then he would not be driven to the cross. And if he were not driven to the cross and then driven up from the grave with authority, he could offer no salvation to a sinner like you. To be sure, God rejected Jesus for a moment by nailing him to a tree so that you and I might be embraced by the Father in heaven for all eternity. God placed your sins on Christ and Jesus willingly embraced the rejection that your sins deserved so that you would not have to face the rejection that your sins deserved. And you see then how the rejection of Jesus actually does accomplish the mission of Christ in your own life personally. And how the rejection of Christ then likewise causes you to turn and share this rejected Christ with a lost world. If you belong to Christ, it's a pattern to embrace. If you understand the gospel message, then you see how the rejected Christ sends his people forward on mission. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would do good for your people through it that you would send it forth and cause it to land in our hearts. I pray that you would help us to grow in embracing the beauty of the rejection of Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Our last song.